Welcome to the Destiny Church 217 podcast, where we share the sermon of the week from Destiny Church. After the message, check out the show notes for links and more information on how to get connected with Destiny. Let's get into the message. I want to start with a story about when Ariel and I first became married. Uh, she had this really old GMC single cab pickup. It was like the 90s era, you know, the good era, right, of Chevy pickups. And she's like, I love this truck. She bought it for, was it $800 from a farmer? So it was already a farm truck, and then she got it. And so, as you can expect, the reliability was great on a farm, not so great on I-55. But we had just been married, and I'm trying to impress my bride. I'm like, I know about cars and car shopping. Because my dad taught me how to, how to buy a car. He said, make sure when you go, first thing you do is check, check the engine light, right? If it's got an engine light on, you don't want it. And I said, okay. And he's like, make sure when you drive that you have the AC turned off so you can hear if any belts are squealing or if something's going on. And then he also told me, check the tires, look underneath for rust. We live in Illinois, right? And so I told Eric, I said, I know how to do it. So we had just been married and, and, and the truck had been messing up and and I, had, I would think I was the last one to drive it. I went down I-55, and I had what looked like a, a jet engine out the back. White smoke was pouring out everywhere. And my dad was driving with me, and we're just laughing. because There's nothing we can do. But what had happened was the rear main seal on the transmission just leaked, and it hit the exhaust, and I became a jet engine on I-55. So we went and bought a Tahoe. And it was, it was a beautiful Tahoe. It was green. It was the... Uh, the best version you could get from 2003, and it was powerful. And, and so I, I bought it, I test drove it, um, but I didn't do a good job buying it because lo and behold, we needed new tires right away. Um, it had rust everywhere. You kicked like the panel and it just, and you're just like, that's not mine. I don't, I don't know who left that rust there. Uh, it had a lot of issues. The rear axles had to be replaced within like two months. A uh, lot, lot went wrong, and I thought to myself, what happened? Uh, I wasn't impressing my wife very much, but we got to a point where it hit winter time, and I was driving, and my gauge cluster died. Anyone ever had that happen to you? You're driving in the winter, and just... The, the, the truck's still running, but I can't tell how fast I'm going or what's going on, so I did what only I would know to do, which is just smash the top of the dash, and it, it came right back on. We're good to go. After a couple days of that, and it stopped working because I hit it so many times, uh, Ryan told me, hey, man, we can take that gauge cluster out. We'll repair it. Probably just a solder joint that you smashed to death. So we take it out, and we get it. I don't know if you've ever done this, but uh, there's a film that you take off, and it has all the little holes for the lights and the symbols for what's going on. And Ryan's like, that's weird. I'm like, what's weird? He said, there's tape on there. I said, oh, maybe it ripped. Like, maybe someone, you know. They had covered the check engine light with black electrical tape. But I felt good because, like my dad said, check the engine light, and that's the one thing I did do, but I never would know. And so it, it's a funny story. It's funny to laugh at, but I wish I would have known and had some experience as to what to do when I bought that vehicle. And eventually I got one of these. This is an OBD2 reader. You plug it into the inside of your vehicle beneath the steering wheel, and it runs a diagnostic on everything that's wrong. So Ryan said, hey, let's get one of these for you. So we plug it in, and it's just like, it's got a read button to press down, and every time you press it, it's a new code. And we just went click, click, code after code. 
and I was so embarrassed, and I was like, well, at least I have one of these now. Next time we, we buy a car, I'm going to check for that and uh, run some diagnostics. But I want us to arrive to a place today where we run some diagnostics on our life. Some of us have the check engine light on, and, and some of us just see it as a nice ambient orange light. <laughs> Well, this makes my skin look great, this orange light. And some of us just, we just pretend that it's not there. But others of us, we've, we've kind of spiritually speaking, taken some black electrical tape and said, I know this is going on and I'm really embarrassed about it and I, I don't want anyone else to see it. And so I'm going to put some tape on it. And how many of you guys know that oftentimes we can ignore something so long or cover it up so long that we think that it doesn't exist anymore? We think that it's okay. So this morning, we're going to take a look at a man's life who could have used some black electrical tape for some of his seasons, but he did a really good job in others. Uh, we're going to identify some tools we can use based upon his life, and that man is David. So David, we arrive at a time in his life where he spent his time as a shepherd. The Lord had anointed him through the prophet Samuel as the next king of Israel, and he was serving part-time in the army. So he would travel back and forth between the battlefield and the farm. He was headed back to his father's house one day with food for his brothers and their captain. But when he arrived, everyone was scared. So if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's also going to be on the screen, but you should bring your Bibles. It's fun. So we're going to arrive in 1 Samuel verse 26. David comes and he hears about Goliath. You might be saying, Aaron, I know the story of David and Goliath. Well, we're going we're gonna to dig in and hopefully you can pick up something you haven't picked up before. Uh, verse 26, David asked the soldiers standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? Jump to first, uh, verse 28. But when David's oldest brother, Eliab, had heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing here anyway? He demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. Jump to verse 32. This is the story we know. David kills Goliath. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. Saul is the king in charge of this battle. So you have this shepherd boy coming to the king and saying, I got it. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. He's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. Here's his resume to fight. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. Come on. I think of uh, Tim the Toolman Taylor. <laughs> Verse 36. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. Man, he's talking smack. For he, was defied, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right. Go ahead. Have you ever had one of those for your family or your, your kids? All right. You want to do it, you go for it. He said, may the Lord be with you. In our final passage here, uh, verse 44, come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals, Goliath yelled. 
David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I have come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defiled. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will cut you, and cut off, I will kill you, and cut off your head, and then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Verse 47. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. As Goliath moves closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from his sheath and used it to kill him and cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. Come on. David said, you don't want this smoke. He said, I got it, man. You're going to tell me that you're going to kill me and feed me to the animals? Guess what? I'm going to do it to you. And I'm going to use your own sword. That was, that was pretty cool. Didn't even come with the sword, but he took his. All right, so cool story, but what are we learning from this? Well, the first thing I want us to pull out of this scripture reference is that David was where he was supposed to be. He was with sheep, but the battle was somewhere else. So how can he being with sheep be where he was supposed to be? Well, he knew he couldn't spend all this time on the battlefield because he had a commitment to his father to protect his sheep. What I love here is that he honored his father. It would be so much better to be with his brothers in the battle, but he said, I'm going to take care of my father. Because he obeyed his father, his purpose was positioned in the perfect place for God to use him. We have to come to a place with our father, Father God, where we say, I'm going to do what you asked me to do because I know that that's going to place my purpose and position to be effective. So the question for you, have you positioned yourself in the place where God can use you? Where are you supposed to be? Say it's at work. I've made a commitment to my boss to do my work, be on time, and leave when it's time to go. Isn't it funny we complain so much about work, but we're the ones who applied to work there? I don't like this place. Well, you asked to be here. Praise the Lord. Maybe it's at home. I have made a commitment to my wife to be home at a decent time to help her with the house, the kids, the dinner. And leave time to have conversation with her to invest into our marriage. That's a place of purpose. But when we are where we're supposed to be, we prioritize God's purpose for our lives. Another thing about this scripture reference that we read is that if you want peace, prepare for war. I came across this, uh, this quote this week and, and what it comes from is, is about a fourth or fifth century general. He had wrote this in his book, but it's, it's also seen in Plato's work. So it's really, really old and it's the same idea throughout history. How many of you guys know that history repeats itself? And so what we learned back that long time ago is still applicable today. If you want peace, prepare for war. Well, this sounds weird, Aaron. I don't, I, what do you mean you want me to prepare for war? Well, this reminded me of David. How was this guy able to walk to the battlefield, look at Goliath and say, oh, it's just a dude. It's just a man. I fought a bear and a lion. I grabbed him by the jaws. What's this guy going to do? The perspective of the entire Israeli army was, uh, we're going to die if we even touch this dude. 
but I love that someone who was prepared, his whole life was shepherding up until this point, his whole time, think of him with his staff, with his sheep. He's just hanging out, and that's a great place to be, and it doesn't seem like much until a threat comes. So what I love about David is he came to this battle, he saw this giant and said, oh, it's not a bear, it's not a lion, this isn't serious, it's just a guy. So then he talked to Smack, he went over there and took care of business, I love it. If David chose to be comfortable in life, and I think this is where some of us can get hung up in life, he chose to be comfortable and let a few sheep be attacked now and again, how bad of a shepherd would it be to say, oh, there's a bear, lunchtime. Hopefully he doesn't kill too many, but this is his livelihood. He chose to stay ready for war. He chose to stay ready and fit for battle. And what did, what did God do? He provided an opportunity to battle. Thank God we don't have to fight Goliath, but what are you fighting for in your life? Think about the things that you're fighting. For some of us, we're fighting for our marriage. It was good, now it's not. It kind of is a roller coaster. Some of us were fighting for our kids. They're not saved. They're doing crazy things. We just want to raise decent human beings. For some of us, we're fighting finances. Why can't we figure this thing out? And for others, it's just relationships. Some of us are feeling like we're fighting Goliath-sized problems. But what if God has allowed, and this is a thought that's tough. This is one that I've wrestled with. What if God has allowed problems in your life to give you an opportunity to overcome? God, why is this happening? I've prayed that prayer. Why is this happening to me? I go to church 52 weeks out of the year. I, I even watch the live stream when I can. I, if they open up the church on Wednesdays, I'd be there too, God. I tithe. I do all of these things. My kids aren't crazy. Uh, my wife loves me and I pay my mortgage. I should be having good things happening to me. But what if God wants you to grow? If we don't have opportunities to battle, you don't have opportunities to learn. And if we don't learn, we grow. We don't grow. If he sends a bear your way, fight. If he sends a lion your way, fight. If he sends a giant, grab a slingshot and five smooth stones and fight. But don't pretend that hard times won't come. Be prepared for battle. Another aspect of David's life that I really enjoy is that he was not only a man of war, but he was a man of worship. It seems different that that, those two things could coexist, but he was someone who was ready to fight and someone who was ready to worship the Lord. It's two different heart postures. It's, no, you're not going to take me down, and then it's, Lord, take who I am. It's all for you anyways. It's such a humbling thing. Let's head over to 2 Samuel. We're jumping ahead in his life, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I love that we reach a new moment in David's life where he is the newly anointed king of Israel. After defeating Goliath, he marries King Saul's daughter. Uh, I guess you could say Michael. In Hebrew, it's Michal, but... You guys are going to make fun of me if I keep saying it like that. But he captures Jerusalem and he brings the ark of God. Everyone is happy and shouting for joy. So he's been king for a bit. He went and uh, took back Jerusalem from the enemy. He brought the ark of God back, which is the presence of God. And we're going to start in verse 16. It says, but as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, the king's uh, daughter, uh, looked down from her window. She saw the king... David was leaping and dancing before the Lord. She was filled with contempt for him. 
How many of you got people in your life that they just can't accept that you're happy? <laughs> they just, I'm upset that you're doing good. Well, you're not my friend. Verse 17. <laughs> they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. Verse 18. When he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. And he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people returned to their homes. When David returned to his home, because he wanted to say, I'm going to go bless my wife and my kids. Uh, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She said in disgust. So she didn't just say it. But she had an ugly face about it. And she said, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like a vulgar person might do. Okay. Um, verse 21, David retorted, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all of his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord, so I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, and this is what it comes down to. This, this is where you got to pay attention. Yes, I am willing to look even more foolish than this. Other translations say undignified. Even to be humiliated in my own eyes, but those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think that I am distinguished. So his wife remained childless throughout her life. Uh, some people think that's one of two reasons. One, the Lord wouldn't let her have kids. The other reason was David didn't like her anymore. So... What's interesting here is that King David's life is anything but normal. Imagine all the problems you have today, but you're in charge of a nation. Imagine you become the president tomorrow. Well, now you not only have your problems, but you got the nation's problems. You have international problems. You got people in this news organization that hate you, and people in this news organization that also hate you, and there's nothing you can do about it. This is David's life here. So to find a king who is willing to take off his royal garments and put on priest clothes to dance with his people should not be a surprise, but for some reason his wife hated it. She wanted him to present himself with more dignity, and she wanted him to act the way she wanted him to act, and she let him know about it. His response was beautiful because it honored God. This is what he says to his wife. All he did was dance. He was so happy that they had won victory, that the presence of God was back in their city, that he danced. And his wife was upset about it. So he says this to his wife after she was super sarcastic in her response to him. He's like, you think this is foolish? You have no idea. He said, you ain't seen nothing yet. Those you thought I offended understand why I was dancing because they know that I was glorifying the God. Can you and I have that same boldness? Some of us can't even witness to people because we're so scared. You know, oh, that person probably needs Jesus. I should go talk to them. Well, they may not like what I have to say and they might yell at me. And, you know, am I the only one? We get to these places where oh, I don't want to raise my hands in, in church, even though Pastor Eric asked us to, so I really don't have too much of an excuse because he asked me to do it. And and, you know, and, but what will people think about me? I remember the first time I lifted my hands in church. I was in kids' church. And there's nothing more terrifying than having other five and six-year-olds watching you. Uh, is he going to raise his hands? I don't know. Is he going to raise his hands? I bet he won't do it because he's scared. You know, so I psyched myself up, and I'm like, bah! 
got my hands in the air. I don't care who cares. And I'm going to wave them. And, and I, don't, I don't care. I'm lifting my hands. And so that, from that point forward, if I can, as a five and six-year-old, overcome the fear of what people think about me lifting my hands in church when the majority of people in church are doing it anyways, I got to be able to do it as an adult. The truth is that not everyone will approve of our decisions. And that we can't change. Isn't that true? You can make a decision today and have 10 people mad at you within a second. It's like, what do I do to you? I don't know you. Leave me alone. If we aren't careful, we can use David's example as permission to do and say whatever we want, though. Some of us can get a prideful boastfulness where we say, that's right, Aaron. I'm going to do exactly what I want to do. Your thumbs, you're already stretching your joints so you can type something on Facebook. <laughs> oh, I'm going to get them. I'm going I'm to say whatever I want to say. I'm going to, oh, man, they're not ready for this. But we have to get something straight. What David did was undignified. It looked foolish, and he was willing to become even more foolish because he was celebrating God's presence in God's presence. The ark was with him. David's willingness to look foolish was not from a place of selfishness or pride. It was to glorify God. It was a righteous act. So the boldness that we carry has to be from a place of humility. It has to say, should I say this? We'll get into more of this a little bit later, but should I say this? Does it glorify me? Does it glorify God? Uh, I listened to a podcast this week with Jim Caviezel. If you don't know who that is, that's an actor who played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. Uh, incredible movie. I went to the theater when it came out. Everybody's crying. Everybody gave their life to Jesus. Powerful. But Jim Caviezel was saying, uh, he was talking about The Passion of the Christ, and he said, he said he had a moment where he prayed to the Lord, and he said, listen, God, when people look at me, who was the guy playing Jesus, I don't want them to see Jim Caviezel. I want them to see you. So help me in this film just be about you. And he said it changed the whole film. It changed his experience, and he thinks that the only reason that there was a success with the film is because he had humility. When what we do or say comes from a place of pointing people to Christ, you should have the boldness of a lion. Well, should I say this? Does it glorify God? Yeah, you should say it. But when we do or say what comes from a place of selfishness, we create uh, the opportunity to exalt ourselves. And we have created an idol before God. Another truth is that when the opinions of other people become more important than the opinion of God, we've created an idol with other people in our lives. We're now taking our worship off God and we're saying, I want these people to love me. I, I want these people to understand who I am. My mother always taught me, she taught Sunday school for many years. She was my Sunday school teacher, and that's never a really good recipe for a young man when his mom's the teacher, because you just cause trouble. And I, hopefully I wasn't too much trouble, mom, but she was my Sunday school teacher, and she would always say um, that life is this short compared to eternity. And as a young man, it was helpful to have the visual. Life is this short compared to eternity. So I have to make the decision that I'm not going to allow people who don't even truly care about me to influence me, to help me make decisions where I would fail just to feel accepted. And the truth that comes out of that is don't allow what's temporary to affect what is eternal. Everything in this life is, is temporary. You could leave the church today, go home and not wake up tomorrow and be dead. 
but you allowed something this afternoon to jack you up, to change your decision making, to sin, to do something that jeopardizes your eternity. And now listen, this is not automatic. You say, well, Aaron, you obviously think that way, and so you probably don't get mad at people. My wife can testify that when I drive on Veterans Parkway, Someone say amen. Amen. I have to make the decision to love people. I have to make the decision to say, my vehicle is bigger than yours. I will run you off the road if you don't apologize. But we cannot allow what's temporary to affect eternity. We're back in scripture here. This is our last big chunk of scripture. So David was a man of war. He was a man of worship. But David was also someone who walked in temptation. Everybody say walked. He walked through temptation. Second Samuel is where we're at, chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 1. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, so he took a nap after church is what happened. No, I'm the only one, okay. David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. He's got nothing to do. His army's fighting. Joab's leading it. I'll get some updates when when they update me, so I'm just going to stroll on my roof. Um, David got out of bed, was walking on the roof. As he looked over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Everybody say, uh-oh. Uh-oh. So at, at this point, you would hope that, you know, have you ever heard bounce the eyes? As someone who grew up in church, is bounce the eyes. You see something, you go, oh. <laughs> Ain't supposed to look at that. Boom. I still do it today. Oh, anyways. <laughs> so instead of bouncing his eyes, he sent someone to find out who she was. I got to know who that chick is. He says, uh, he was told, her name's Bathsheba the daughter of Iliam, and the wife, everybody say wife, it's an important fact in this story, of Uriah the Hittite. Then, he kept going, man, he's got a shovel in his hands, digging a hole. David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, everybody say pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I mean, super short text. <laughs> I'm pregnant. Second Samuel uh, eleven six. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. This is her husband. He's trying to fix something he broke. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along, how the war was progressing. You, you've seen these conversations. So... Uh, How's it going? Feeling the guilt of what he has done. Everything's good, huh? Yeah, food's good. Okay, everybody's good. All right. So he's got this attitude towards Uriah of just like trying to please him. Uh, Then he told Uriah, go home and relax. David sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Then David heard that Uriah had not followed his plan. Do you know what the plan is yet? He's trying to get him to go home so he thinks it's his baby. Uh, But Uriah had so much character. He's like, no, I'm going to sleep on the floor. Uriah replied, "Um, 
Though he said, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away so long? Verse 11, he replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Here's David's new plan, because his first plan is so successful. He says, David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. Maybe if I get him drunk, his character will go down. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. What a mess. We, we just had two great victories in his life. He defeated Goliath. He, he, he rescued Jerusalem. He got the ark back. He danced before the Lord in all of this righteousness. And now he just messed up. It's not how life goes sometimes. We get these victories after victory and we feel good about ourselves. And then we come to a place where we go, what did I do? Has anyone had that moment? What did I just do? Scripture goes on to say that King David sent a letter with Uriah to Joab that said, place him on the front line so he'll be killed. Isn't that just, he sent his own death letter with him. So Uriah carried a letter that he could not open that said, kill me. Oh man, this plan actually worked. So plan number three worked. Um, Uriah was killed by the Ammonites. What a transition. So what on earth happened to his winning streak? Every, everything was going so well. Here's, here's a, a list of things in his life. He defended his flocks from bears and lions. He was anointed to become king of Israel. He slayed a giant when no one else had the courage. He avoids being murdered by King Saul when he made him mad. He becomes king of Israel himself. He destroys the armies that stand up against Israel. And then he, well, he messes up. Does this sound familiar? What I want us to learn from this scripture passage is that David placed himself in a position to fail because he abandoned his purpose. He gave in to temptation. In, verse, uh, in the first verse of what we just read, we learned that King David was supposed to be with his army. They said when, when, when the kings are with their armies, this is because this is right after winter in Israel. Uh, winter is a rainy season, so spring has finally come. Farmers are planting, the roads are dry. This is the time to move. However, uh, he didn't go. What's interesting is God gives us free will. Isn't it easy to blame our mess-ups on free will? Well, God let me do it. Okay. We have to be aware of where we have positioned ourselves in life. God will not force us to be where we're supposed to go. We have free will. We get to make the decision. This is not automatic. It takes work, and it requires us to pay attention. So let me ask you, are you in a position to win against temptation? Well, what does that look like? I'm glad you asked. I have found victory fighting temptation for myself when I'm playing with my kids. I don't have room to have all these awful thoughts come in my head. I'm having fun with my kids. We're playing Legos. Batman just got the guy from Jurassic Park, and, and we got dinosaurs everywhere, and we're having fun. Adeline and I are having a tea party, and the tea's... We're having a tea party, and, and we're playing, and, and so I don't have time to think about stupid things. I found that when I'm hanging out with my wife, I don't have temptation. She's fun. She's really cool to be around. And we have great conversations. And, and when I'm with her, I'm good. 
My thoughts are correct. They're where they're supposed to be. But as soon as I'm not in my purpose as a father, as a husband, as soon as I'm in a place where I want to be comfortable, when the king's supposed to go out with his armies, when Aaron is supposed to be playing with his kids or hanging out with his wife or, or doing work for the Lord and ministering to people, I come to a place of silence. And in my silence, when I'm not in my purpose, that's when temptation comes. Anybody else? That's when, when I'm alone by myself, I now have the opportunity, it's so quiet, that I have the opportunity to hear things I don't need to hear, to have thoughts I don't need to have. But where I have found victory outside of those things is when I am alone and temptation comes, worship God. Become a man or woman of worship. You know how hard it is to have bad thoughts when God's with you? Imagine if Jesus was standing next to you and you start having bad thoughts. You'd, you'd correct them right away. I have also found victory against temptation when I'm in God's word. It's a whole love letter just for you. And God has given us rules about life and he's given us proverbs and he's given us stories about David's life that we can learn and actually grow up. All of those require intentionality though. You're not gonna sit down on the couch today and be like, I'm gonna read the word. I don't. I don't go home to be comfortable to do something intentionally about reading the word. I don't just go home and say, oh, I'm gonna worship the Lord right now. Chili's was great, I'm tired now, and I'm gonna grab my guitar and just worship the Lord. It takes intentionality. I have to identify in those seasons of life, like David did on the rooftop, when I'm on the rooftop of where I'm not even supposed to be, I have to decide, this isn't from God, this is not good, I need to correct it. God has given me the tools to correct it, so I'm gonna do it. Like King David, we abandon our purpose when we choose comfort over responsibility. In verse two, we see that David digs himself into a deeper hole. He saw a woman bathing. He didn't bounce the eyes. He acted on it. He goes from being tempted to pursuing the temptation. Have we ever done that? Well, I'm tempted right now. I'm gonna grab onto it. The next thing I want us to see from this passage is that we see a man of war refuse to fight for the first time in his life. This is a dude ready to kill lions and bears. He's ready to kill giants. He's ready to defeat armies left and right with the power of God. But the first time we see a little bit of this temptation in his life, he puts his, he puts his sling down. He puts his sword down. He takes his armor off, spiritually speaking, and he says, I'm vulnerable now. James 1.14, I love this. This is very clear and concise. It says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Did y'all hear that? When sin is allowed to grow, when we accept it, it gives birth to death. Well, you don't understand, Aaron, I just can't fight temptation in my life. Well, we're given another scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. You are not alone, church. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. God will open the door, amen, but you have to walk through it. It's said, God's faithful to open a door. We still gotta move. We gotta be intentional. We gotta make the decision. Next thing, David tried to cover his sin. David is a smart man. He's the king of Israel. He knew what he did immediately, and instead of coming to God, he killed a man. In verse six, he tried to be clever. Uriah, come off the battlefield, man. Just sleep with your wife. He got him drunk. That didn't work. 
He resorts to murder. Guess what? That didn't work either. It doesn't matter how clever or smart we think we are. You may be able to fool your friends and family, but you cannot fool God. That's a scary thought, friends. We, we get so convinced of ourselves how good we are at making other people's perception of us be what we want it to be, but God always sees it. David paid a heavy price, friends. I didn't read this in scripture, but Bathsheba gives birth to that child. Uriah dies, he takes her as his wife, and baby's born, baby gets six, seven days, David fasted, said, God, heal the baby, and then the baby dies. The price of our sin may not be immediate, but scripture said the wages of sin is death. What does that mean, the wages of sin? That means if you sin, what you get paid, a paycheck gets sent to your direct deposit. And it's spelled D-E-A-T-H, death. Just like Eve in the garden, the enemy told her that she wouldn't die if she ate the fruit. How many of you know that there was a spiritual death that took place? There was a separation from walking with God in perfect peace. Do not allow temptation to separate you from your walk with God. So today's message is really about priorities at the end of the day. David's priorities start out great. We discussed how he killed Goliath and he gave God the glory. Amen. He pleased the Lord. He returned the ark to Jerusalem and danced undignified. Amen. This pleased the Lord. But we hit a bump in the road of his victorious life when he chose to stay home, abandon his purpose, and allow temptation to thrive. This pleased David, but only for a season. I want to invite you to the conclusion this morning that our priorities shift and rearrange based upon who we want to please. I heard a quote this morning, Pastor Eric sent it to me, it says, if you try to please everyone, you'll end up pleasing no one. You see, if our goal is to please others, we open the door to crippling our ability to witness because I'm more concerned about making them feel comfortable than their salvation. When we, when we try to please others, we're creating the idol of acceptance in our life. I better not speak God's truth in love because I might upset them. If our goal is to please others, we open up the door to losing our identity. I think we have an identity crisis today, friends. We don't know who we are. Who am I supposed to be? What is my purpose in life? Your identity is found in Christ. I want to say that with me. Your identity is found in Christ. Not the labels we receive from other people that we try to please. When we stop pleasing other people, we are no longer necessary to them in their lives. Well, they just, they just quit talking to me. Well, did you, did you stop helping them out? Did you, did you stop trying to please them and massage everything you try to say to them to make them feel good about them? Well, of course they're not going to be around you anymore. So we talked about if we please others, but if our goal is to please ourselves and we don't like talking about this because it hits so close to home, we open up the door to pride. I created the mess and I'm going to fix it without God because I get the glory if I get I'm the one who fixes it. If our goal is to please ourselves, we open up the door to isolation. Uh, in my years of ministry, I, I, I just turned 33, and I told Ryan, my, my daughter's eight, and my son is turning seven. I was like, I feel older than I did. And it's a really a time for self-reflection, but I've been in ministry longer than I know, and, and what I see is that when people jump into sin, they typically isolate themselves from the body of Christ. They kind of do one of these, hey... I'm going to be over here. And then you can't hear their voice anymore. Like, hey, where'd they go? I don't know. And usually, not all the time, 
Usually there's like, hey man, I was struggling with X, Y, and Z, and I didn't want you to know about it because I felt this type of way. I don't want you to think that I was. It's, it's nonsense. Trust your brothers and sisters in Christ. Come to God. Don't isolate yourself. That's where the enemy wants you to be. I got to keep rolling. When we please ourselves, it opens up the door to separation from God. Accepting sin severs your closeness to the Father. Life is too crazy not to be close to God. Life is too crazy not to have his help. But if our goal is to please the Lord, it requires something of us. To be a living sacrifice, every day I must choose to put God first. When I wake up in the morning, uh, Ariel and I have created this habit. I'm super grateful for it. We get up, we pray. You know, we're usually, our eyes aren't open yet. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be awake, but I'm going to pray anyways, you know. And God, thank you for today. Let it be a fun day. I'd like it to be fun. And uh, just be with us. Help us today. I choose to serve you. That opens up the door, friends, to so many cool things in life. When we choose to please the Lord, it requires confession. This is something that the, the, the people don't really like, but it says in 1 John chapter 1, 9 through 10, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that, he has, that his word has no place in our hearts. I don't want that. It also requires prayer. You actually have to talk to God. Some of us, we, we overcomplicate prayer. We get to a place where I don't know what to say. It's just a conversation. If I stop talking to my wife, she's going to stab me. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But she won't be happy. How am I supposed to maintain that relationship? She, I said that because she has JJ's fake plastic knife back there. Uh, it's fun. But if I don't talk to my wife, I cannot maintain the appropriate level of relationship with her. If we don't pray to God and ask for help, we're not going to maintain our relationship with him. The shifting of our priorities should be determined by who cares, capital W. Who cares? God does. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, give all of your worries and cares to God, for he cares for you. Pastor Eric just preached this recently. That God cares for us. The King James says, he careth for you. Give all of your worries and cares to God. Does anyone have a worry or a care? <clears throat> a few people. Give it to God because he cares about you. So in our final time together this morning, I want to leave you with a tool that will help you figure out what God cares about. Because I don't want to please other people. I want to love other people. I'm not here to please them necessarily. And I'm not here to please myself I need to have some humility and walk with the Lord. So if we figure out that the person we need to please is God, we need to care what he cares about, right? My wife cares about things. And I'm using her as an example because it makes the most sense to me in this application. When she makes rice, she, my wife is, is Puerto Rican. She makes good rice. Thank you to my mother-in-law for teaching her. But there's something special about that rice to her. I eat the rice that's on top. She waits for the rice that's on the bottom that's burnt. I see someone nodding their head, you know about this rice. <laughs> I look at it and I say, that's burnt rice. I don't want burnt rice. I want good rice. And she said, no, Aaron. Something happens to the rice when it's burnt. That's the best rice. I'm like, no, it's not. But now when she makes rice, I don't make fun of it anymore because she cares about it. It's so, so simple. It's something that she loves. I don't get it. 
I don't have to get it. But she loves it. God has preferences, friends. He has things that he likes. And they're not going to be popular to the world. They're not going to be popular on Facebook. They're not going to be popular on the news. But guess what? Are we here to please other people? We're here to please God. You can say, oh, this is great. I'm good, Aaron. I'm comfortable with where I'm at in life. But your greatest advocate for comfort in your life is the devil. The one who wants you to be the most comfortable is the father of lies. He says, listen, dude, get the truck. Get the lazy boy. Stay home instead of going to your kid's game. Stay home instead of talking with your wife. Put some headphones on. Play the game. Turn on Netflix. Just don't do anything that could advance the kingdom of God. The number one rule in Satanist Bible, I believe, it says, do with thy will. It makes sense. If you don't love God. If you're comfortable, you are not a threat to the devil. What's hard about this is that narrow is the path to righteousness. Matthew chapter 7 says you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few people ever uh, find it. I want to be one of those few. But I I think that 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 illustration that that Jesus is giving here is it kind of looks a little bit like this. And it, it kind of feels like you're going maybe an inch at a time. It's not comfortable. And I, I'm the last person to want to be in a crowd where people are touching me and bumping me. And I'm like, I know that I'm, I'm large. I've accepted it. So when I'm in a crowd, it's a problem. Other people are touching me. I don't want you to touch me. I'll shake your hand, but our elbows should not touch. That's not something that I want. Um, even so in my vehicle I just bought an old Yukon and got no rust on it praise the Lord no check engine light nothing wrong with it it's got big seats I sit in it miles I sit in it I feel like a king can't nobody touch me in my Yukon my wife sits over here we can't even touch each other we're so far apart but I that's what the world wants us to have. And if you're living life like this and, and you have to touch nobody, you don't have to touch anyone's heart. You don't have to minister to anyone. You don't have to bump elbows with anybody. That's where the devil would like you to be. But friends, the path to righteousness is narrow. I want you to be one of those few too. Our last scripture today is Micah 6, verse 8. It says, No, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. This is what he requires of you, church. Do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Other scripture says to act justly, where it says to do good. But I'm calling this the God filter. Why do we need this filter in our lives? Uh, I found a study from 2020 that says we have on average 6,000 thoughts a day. 6,000 thoughts a day. The the odds are stacked against us, friends, to make good decisions. When you have 6,000 thoughts, 6,000 opportunities to do what is wrong. So uh, I know Cheryl loves the gold shows. She loves watching the guys find the gold. They 
They're out in these caves and they're in these mines and they're searching for it. But you know, on the show, you typically find gold within what, 30 minutes, 20 minutes on the show, you find gold. But if you were to go out to those mines today, say it was even in the time where the gold rush was and you got your pickaxe and you got your, uh, was it would be a filter, a pan. You have your pan and your pickaxe, you know, I'm gonna get some gold. Joe and Larry said that there's gold over here. I, would li I like gold, I'm gonna go get gold. And so you go and say, where's the gold? Everybody said it was here. What has to happen here? You gotta work, man. You gotta work for it. Not only do you take your pickaxe and pick at it, all the rock falls, and now, now what are you doing? You're grabbing all of it. And you're taking it with you to the pan. And you're trying to find, and you have to get the gravel out, you have to get whatever the mine is made out of, whatever the earth is made out of, you have to pick that out of there, get all the rocks out of the way, only to find the smallest piece. But how many of you guys know it's not about the smallest piece, it's about its worth. So what I want us to do is, is do something called taking all of our 6,000 opportunities and run it through the God filter. And this is what it looks like. It takes a time and effort, but when we have an idea, it starts with, is this the right thing to do? Is this just? And, and so, well, I don't know, but yes, you do. You're an adult. You know what is right from wrong. You knew it when you were two. Mine. Mine. That's not something we learn. That's in us. We know right from wrong. Am I able to show mercy to others? It says to love mercy uh, to those that wrong me for it. When, when you start doing the right thing and filtering your thoughts, people are going to not like you anymore. Some of those people are going to say, I don't like you anymore. And then finally, we run the filter through, am I glorifying myself in this or am I glorifying God in this thought? Here's the tough thing. Doing the right thing will sometimes require that you're willing to lose. Nobody likes to lose. We like to win, right? But if I have this thought, is this the right thing to do? Yes. Well, you might lose, man. You're probably not going to win on this. It's okay. I'm willing to take a hit physically for a spiritual win. I'm willing to do what Jesus died on the cross for. I'm willing to do what it takes. Loving mercy requires that we forgive people who we don't even feel deserve it. It's not being willing to forgive, it's actually doing it. And then what does walk in humility with God mean? It's recognizing that none of this works without him. We can do nothing properly without the love of God in our hearts. If you would this morning, go ahead and close your eyes. Uh, we're gonna take an opportunity to do a little bit of work. It's gonna be really short and then service will be done today. For some of you listening, you may be the, this might be the first time that you've heard some of these scriptures, some of these principles. This is the perfect opportunity to start a relationship with the one, capital W, who cares? He loves you so much that he positioned you in a place today to hear this message. He sees you in your circumstance. He wants to show you peace that this world cannot provide. He wants to forgive your sins so that he can be close to you. And most importantly, he wants you. So if you hear this morning, you say, Aaron, I've never heard this stuff before. I'm not really sure what you're talking about. Well, I, I want you to know the one who cares. I want you to transition from a place of pleasing other people, pleasing yourself, to pleasing the one who created you. 
He loves you. He sees you. He wants you to know him. He wants to have a relationship with you. If that's you this morning, just lift your hand and say, uh, Lord, I'm a sinner. You can pray this with me. Lord, I'm a sinner. Today I choose you. Forgive me of my sins. Help me to take the narrow path. Be my savior. Be my friend. Help me figure this thing out and put people around me to help see me succeed. In Jesus' name, amen. We're not done working yet. You might be here today and say, Aaron, I already have a relationship with God. But if you're ready to correct your priorities and rearrange them through the God filter, if you're ready to implement this in your decision-making, if you're ready to take the tools that we've learned from life that King David has shown us to please your own purpose in the perfect position to be used by God, just raise your hand this morning. Say, God, I'm ready to run my life through the God filter. I'm ready to take those 6,000 thoughts. And they've made me in places where I've been in trouble, God. I, I have said things I should not have said. I did things that I should not have done. Not only were they incorrect, but they did not please you. Help me, God, to have the boldness to not say things that are not true just to please others. Help me not to serve the idol of acceptance and help me to serve you, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. God, thank you for this sermon today. God, thank you that we have an opportunity to implement something where we can grow. Thank you for our time of worship with the kids and thank you for the truth that you give. Help us to be bold as lions. Help us to be people who are prepared for war so that we see a battle and we don't run. Help us to be people who love worship and help us when we walk in temptation to trust that you have our back and that you've created a door. Give us the boldness to walk through. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. As we conclude this podcast, we want to take a moment to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this message, please consider subscribing to receive our weekly podcast on your device. Check out the show notes for links to our website, more information about this message, or to support our ministry. You've been listening to the Destiny Church 217 Podcast, your place for real, relevant relationships.